You are listening to the Mother Good Podcast, episode number 59. I'm your host, Emily Carney. We at Mother Good believe that there's no way to be a perfect mom, but many ways to be a good one. Our content is judgment-free within the context of evidence-based research. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mother Good Podcast. I'm so excited about our guest today, Kiara Smith, and she's a pediatric public floor physical therapist. And as everyone who's listened to this podcast for any amount of time knows that I'm super passionate about public floor health. So I'm super excited to chat with Kiara about how this relates to our children. And if you haven't already, uh, feel free to hit the subscribe on our episodes so that you always uh, get the latest one that's released and you won't miss an episode. And then also, we'd really appreciate it if you would just hit the ratings, you know, give us as many um, stars as you want to give us. And I know a lot of people have asked, how do I rate since I've been asking recently in the episode? So if you're an Apple podcast, all you do is you just scroll to the very bottom of where you see all the episodes and then it'll show where you can like write a review or you can just hit, uh, you know, however many stars you want if you don't want to take the time to actually write a review. So that'd be greatly appreciated. So thank you so much. And also a little disclaimer, as with all of our medical episodes, that nothing in this episode is medical advice. It's just for purely informational purposes only. And there's no patient client relationship, uh, or sorry, I'm always saying client because I'm a, an attorney. So that's always just rolling <laughs> off the rolling off the tongue. So there's no doctor patient relationship in this episode. It's nothing is formed here, just purely for informational purposes. And with that, I'd love to welcome Kiara. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. And thank you for inviting me to share some of my expertise with your followers. Well, it's so funny because as I mentioned in the intro that I'm super passionate about pelvic floor health, I just came off of about four to five months worth of pelvic floor physical therapy myself after giving birth to my son. So I'm very familiar with it when it comes to women's health, but I just came across your page a few weeks ago and I don't know why it surprised me that I never really thought of that if pelvic floor health when it comes to children But then when I've just been reflecting on it recently and how, you know, we've kind of struggled with potty training my daughter and then, you know, constipation, all those sorts of things we're going to get into that. And it just never really struck me that there was that kind of resource for children. So could you just explain everyone first, just start off by telling everyone a little bit about yourself and then you can talk about what you do. Yeah, of course. And so you're not alone. I just want to say that there's a lot of people who are like, I cannot believe there's a pelvic floor therapist that treats children. And I'm like, well, children have a digestive system. They have a urinary system, just like an adult. So we can get into the details of that. But like um, you mentioned, my name is Kiara Smith. I'm actually a pediatric pelvic health occupational therapist. Um, But we basically are specialist in the area of pelvic floor with a sensory and developmental approach to care, which is really nice to kind of get that holistic and integrative background um, when treating children. I have a boutique practice here in Santa Rosa, California, where I exclusively treat pediatric 
patients and clients. And I help figure out what are the missing pieces to um, the child having some dysfunction in their bowel and bladder control and their toileting skills. So I'm super passionate about this um, specialty area of practice. And it's so needed to get the information and correct information out there that is evidence-based. Um, and, and that's a, a huge kind of area of need. I love that you're evidence-based too. And that's something that us at Mother Good were all about, evidence-based research. And, you know, because there's a lot of information floating out there, sometimes information overload. So it's sort it's hard to sort through the noise and figure out, okay, you know, is this just someone's story? They're just anecdata, which, you know, sometimes that is super helpful as well, but it's nice to get an evidence-based approach too. So then you know what normally happens in most situations. So I, I'd love to start off with, uh, you know, cause you, so you mentioned that it's, you're an occupational therapist. Uh, what was the difference just so our listeners know between an occupational therapist and like a physical therapist? What, what are some roles and I guess things that you do to help your clients? Yeah, so that's a great question because there's actually more um, pediatric pelvic floor therapists that are physical therapists. That's just what they started out as. And now the occupational therapists are getting into the field more. So an occupational therapist looks at more functional activities things like self-care skills, so dressing, um, feeding, bathing, toileting, things that are functional self-care tasks that a child will be able to do throughout their their lifespan. Mm -hmm. And um, the physical therapists, they need to know that information as well, but they're looking more at like maybe the way that child is walking, so their gait or the the angle of where their hips are moving and looking at um, more biomechanical kinds of approaches or neuromuscular kinds of um, orthopedic mm. issues where the OTs are looking um, more with a lens of function. How is this particular limitation impacting function? Um, mm. So those are kinds of the differences and people say, well, it looks the same to me. It looks all the same, but we're looking at it from a different lens. Um, so that's kind of the difference. And, and OTs are really equipped with understanding the sensory system and how that works and how that could be impacting a child's bowel and bladder control, but also to their ability to toilet. So an example of that could be, you know, my child can't really feel the urge to pee or poop. Like, why is that? Are they just lazy or are they just unaware? And it could be actually that their sensory system is under-responsive. It's not um, firing that signal strong enough or loud enough for them to, to make that connection of, oh yeah, that means I have to pee. Or, oh yeah, I mean, that, that means I have to poop. So those are the things that OTs are really equipped with understanding how that system works and how to support it to get it more integrated and more balanced. That's so fascinating to me. And just as you're talking, I'm sort of just thinking about scenarios that I've come across just hanging out with my other mom friends. And a common one that I've seen is all the kids are playing and then they're having so much fun. And then suddenly a kid pees his or her pants because they're just, not that they're not potty trained, but they're just having so much fun. And then they, I guess they kind of forgot to go. <laughs> so that, that just rings a bell when you're, when you're telling me all these different sorts of scenarios that, you know, why, why kids possibly aren't going or getting that urge to go. So I did see on your Instagram page that you do talk about when kids don't get the urge to pee or poo. And why is that? Um, why don't they feel that? And then also how can we help them to recognize 
that they do have an urge or how do we help them get that urge? I, I'm not even sure if I'm formulating it the right <laughs> way. For, you know, and that's why I'm struggling. I'm like, I don't know, like how, you know, how do we teach them to actually listen to their bodies? Yeah, that's a great question. And you're not alone in trying to figure out how to formulate that question. Because oftentimes parents are like, I know that they have to go and I know that I have to train them to do something, but like, how does that connection happen? And like <laughs> exactly. you mentioned, with the sensory system, that's how the connections happen. So let's take an example for going pee. Our body is continually making urine, right, through mm-hmm. our urinary system. And then it fills our bladder balloon. Um, mm-hmm. And when that bladder expands with volume of pee, it sends a signal to our brain saying, hey, there's something in there. We have to let it go. Mm-hmm. And so that signal and that connection doesn't become apparent to children developmentally until a particular age. Oh, so wow. that is um, when children understand what that feeling or sensation is, it coincides with their sphincter control, how their bladder is able to volitionally open and close. Mm. And so that happens after 12 months of age. So sometimes parents are trying to figure out, well, how does this system work and how exactly am I supposed to train this child? And so there's a lot of steps to it. As you can see, if we look at the science and the, the kind of background that the body needs to have and enable to be enabled to do these things like toilet train. And so what happens is then we start making connections. So the bladder gets filled, I get this urge sensation, and then I connect that I have to go to the bathroom and then I make an appropriate action, which is go to the bathroom. And so we have to make sure that the child is able to make those connections and not to put them or force them into a situation of potty training like too early and mm, expect okay. them to do this because sometimes they're, they're unaware. Okay, that's one scenario. And the other scenario could be that the child really is having that under-responsive system. So everything's working, like the connections are there, but the signal is not strong enough for them to act upon the urge. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So how do we get them to act upon a strong urge is to do those timed voidings when they're young. So when they're in that good sweet spot of the potty training age, and this people will debate on this for days and days, but (laughs) as a provider in pelvic health and what I've seen my colleagues recommend is actually older or later in childhood and uh, later toddlerhood is when the appropriate age should be. Meaning Mm -hmm. kids that are 24 months to 36 months is like the sweetest spot. And that's what evidence is supporting. That was going to be one of my questions to you since you were talking about don't start too early. I was going to ask what is the right age to start training? And I I don't know if you've probably come across this yourself. Is there almost seems like that there's that pressure among parents. It's almost like a competition. Like, well, my, my kid was potty trained by this age or, you know, oh, we're going to start early. I I don't know why it is. You know, it's kind of funny because I mean, they're kids. It's not like they're going to be in diapers when they're adults, you know, like they'll eventually be potty trained. So I don't really get the, the rush to hurry up and potty train, you know? I mean, I guess sometimes preschools require it. So that, that could be one, one issue. Yeah. And that's a great point because we have all these societal pressures, right? As a mom, I'm a mom to an almost three-year-old and this potty training journey is something that's so unique to each family. And oftentimes Mm -hmm. when I'm seeing kids in my clinic, it's because this stage of development 
has gone awry, meaning Mm. that it wasn't the most optimal time for that child or something happened in this Mm. kind of process that has made it to be dysfunctional. Like their bowel and bladder system now is not acting optimally. It's dysfunctionally, um, you know, like acting. And so this often happens when there's that pressure because of preschool, you can't bring your child to a, a preschool if they're not fully potty trained or even a daycare these days. They're saying, oh, Hey, wow. you know, I've seen clients in my practice who they said, you know, we're full-time parents, we need daycare options for our child. And we mm. just thought, you know, hey, we read books on 18 months seemed to be a good time to potty train. So we did it. And, wow. it, you know, it really backfired. And I will say this is a disclaimer is like every child is different. And every situation is different. But we know now through science and some research that if we wait a little bit longer, not only does the sensory system mature, but the, all the other things like the social emotional skills of a child, the cognitive skills of a child, the physical skills of a child. And if we're able to kind of hold off, if there's not so much pressure that I feel like the child is set up for better pelvic health in the long run. And it's oftentimes hard to find settings where administrators and educators are open to the fact that the child is older and potty Mm -hmm. learning. But then I tell parents, it is your choice. Ultimately, you know, you can always find another facility that they support that if that is something you strongly feel um, that you want to hold your guns to and not want to, you know, just give up on just forcing the issue. Hmm. So what are some of the symptoms and problems that kids can develop from starting too early? Because you mentioned that a lot of kids who come into your clinic, they, the parents had them start a little bit too soon for, you know, obviously with that disclaimer that you said, every kid is different. So what kinds of problems and symptoms can a child develop if they start too soon for, for their own body? Yeah. So starting too soon and there you'll see people say there's readiness cues. You know, if your child is showing these readiness signs that they're, you know, they're good to go. Just start like putting them on the toilet and X, Y, and Z follow this method and they'll be potty trained in three days. Mm-hmm. Like, so the readiness cues are really what we look in, in pelvic health are around three domains. So Physically, can the child physically get to a toilet or get to a potty chair? Mm. Can they physically help push down underwear, push down um, undergarments and pull up? Can they try and help to, to clean, to do uh, toileting hygiene? Cognitively, can they follow directions? Are they understanding one to two step simple directions? Because toileting is really a higher level task. If you think about how you are independently doing this for yourself, and then you're going to have to expect a child to do this for themselves, we get a better understanding of, wow, that really is a lot for me to expect this 18-month-old to do or mm-hmm. 24-month-old to do or whatever the age is of your child. And we want to make sure that we're understanding developmental skills because if your child is not showing those kinds of skills yet, if we expect them to, it could be more pressure and more stress. And then you get that resistance and pushback. Mm. And then you get the, um, the uh, withholding behaviors. So if a child is, is expected to do these things and they're resistant, then they start controlling, which is mm. withholding. And that can cause more challenges as you go down the path of bowel and bladder health. 
Mm, okay. Okay. And then what are some examples of kids uh, when they withhold or resist? Like what would those, what would those behaviors look like? like? Yeah. So if you're trying to get your child to sit on a potty chair or a toilet and they're screaming no, and their body is tense, there's no way a nervous system who is um, upregulated, what we call or tense is going to be able to relax to void. So if someone's telling you like in the doctor's office, like, oh, you got to pee in this cup right now and I'm standing in front of you and I expect <laughs> you to let everything out and get right. all the pee out of your bladder, like you're going to be like, oh my goodness, like, no, uh, I can't do it right now. And so that's kind of an example of when we're putting these kind of pressures, like, and these are for parents too, who are well-meaning and you want to show them, you want to teach them, but you have to look at your child. You have to see mm. who your child is what their um, kind of sensitivities are or their personalities, because it's going to be different from child to child if you have multiple children. And one way you you work with one child or communicate with one child is not going to necessarily work for the other child. And a lot of parents come into my clinic saying that, like, well, this worked with, you know, the older sibling. Why can't it work with this sibling? And it's like, because they're two different kiddos. And we have to understand that sometimes the behaviors are showing us as parents or caregivers what they're struggling with. Mm. So if it's maybe they're tensed up when they're looking at a bathroom because it's dark in there, or they are covering their ears because of an automatic flush in a public toilet. um, What, you know, how can that, how can our expectations um, be tailored to some of the things that they're struggling with from the very beginning? Mm -hmm. It's so funny because when you were saying that that parents are saying, well, why isn't my kid like the other kid? It's it's so interesting how we as parents, we always are looking for that magic formula. And I've fallen into that trap myself when you just want something to work and f- follow all these rules and then it'll definitely work, whether it's sleep training or you know pot- potty training, those sorts of things. And I mean, obviously we know that that's not going to be the case, that there isn't a magic formula always. I mean, obviously there's, there's guidelines that can help us, but it's just funny that we keep on looking for some magic to, yeah. to help us to automatically do it. So you had mentioned earlier uh, timed voidings. I wanted to get back to that uh, and dig a little bit more into that. So to get our kids to be able to listen to their urge and to respond to their urge to go to the bathroom, you mentioned one tool is timed voidings. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. So time voidings are intervals that we know based on a child's age, how long they should be able to hold. Like let's take for, for instance, bladder, like the urge to pee. So a child who is potty training, potty learning, they should be able to hold for an hour and a half to two hours. Um, because that's when the bladder capacity, like the amount of volume in the bladder is full. It's like at the maximum level. And then you have to empty. If they're going anytime over that, it's stretching that bladder. It's stretching the muscle. And when you get that stretch in the muscle of the bladder, the signals start kind of getting confused. Like, oh, like I have pee in here, but you're not letting it out. Why is that? Okay. I guess I have to keep holding. And after a while, if we keep doing that, the connections and the way that the muscles are working and the sphincter muscles are working um, are not functioning 
optimally because they're mm-hmm. opening or closing at the wrong time. So just like a muscle in the bicep, if I'm holding a bag of groceries, I can't hold it for like 10 minutes, right? I'm going to be I'm going to be tired and I'm going to let go. Same thing for the pelvic floor muscles. They're holding, they're holding the bladder, the sphincters are holding and then they fatigue and they let go and that's when you have kids who are having leaks or accidents and they're like, "Well, I didn't really know what was what was happening. I couldn't really feel it, but it was because they were holding too long, waiting too long to go to the bathroom." So if we do time voiding, we can give the body those set times during the day to practice that skill. And then the brain body connection starts getting stronger. So they feel the urge they connect what that urge means. There's a meaning to that. And then they appropriately act. I have two follow-up questions to what you were just saying. So the first is hydration. And then the second is asking kids to go to the bathroom before you know you leave to go somewhere or before nap time or bedtime. Uh, is, does hydration play, play a role in how often they have to go to the bathroom? Like how much, I guess, should your kid be drinking during the day so that they are, you know, urinating appropriately and staying hydrated? And then also, is it appropriate to ask them to go to the bathroom, even if they don't feel like they have to go before you leave to go somewhere or before nap time and bedtime? Yeah. So in the potty learning stages, I will. Because it gives them the opportunity because they're not there. They don't have that solid connection or understanding of, um, you know, like what that feeling is and how I have control over it or not in the appropriate way. So I will do time sits even when there's no urge, when they're just starting the process. But if they've been through the process and, you know, they're over the age of four, I wouldn't do prompt voiding, meaning I wouldn't say, Oh, because we're leaving the house, you need to go sit and use the bathroom. Because by that time, if they've had at least six months to a year of practice of potty learning, potty training, and they should be able to understand that connection. Because if you're doing that, if you're prompting too much for no urge, then Mm -hmm. you can have an issue with like the bladder getting confused of being um, what we call like overactive, meaning it's it's signaling that it has to go, but it really isn't full yet. And then you can get issues with urgency and frequency, which we don't want to happen. We want to make sure that a child is able to fully empty their bladder when the bladder capacity is 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 reached. Um, we don't want like just all these different times of day where they're voiding just half of their bladder or just a fourth of their bladder because it doesn't really give the correct sensation or signaling over time. And then they grow up to be adults who are having issues with frequency and urgency. Oh, I feel like I have to go to the bathroom every 30 minutes. Like, but I know I just went and it doesn't feel like anything's in there, but you know, it's like that. And so we don't, we want to prevent those things from happening, but that's a great question. The hydration piece is really important too, because it ties in with the um, digestive system as well. We know that if a child is well hydrated, and it depends on where you're living too, if you live in a humid place like Hawaii, or you live in a desert like Arizona or Las Vegas, then your child is active, you have to appropriately meet the needs of your child's hydration based on their activity level and your geographical location. Um, So that being said, a lot of people will just say, you know, your child is 30 pounds, your target Um, fluid intake is going to be 15 ounces per day and you spread that out throughout the day. You know, you have a water bottle and you 
um, say they're in kindergarten, you have a little um, piece of tape that says, you know, by this time, you know, you put like lunch or something, uh, you can draw a little picture because they probably can't read at this point. But you draw a little picture of like a lunchbox and you say by lunchtime, you know, Kai, I need you to finish all your water when I pick when mommy picks you up. So then it's all done. And then when you get home, we're going to make the the um, tape higher and then you would refill it again because maybe he has soccer or he's doing swimming. And so you have to just keep on it like that. That's going to help with having softer stools and easeful stools. Um, when kids are not well hydrated, it's going to affect the, the risk of constipation and also the ability for the bladder to fill. So if you're not getting constant fluids throughout your day, you're not going to have the ability to feel like what it feels like to have a full bladder. And that's going to impact your ability to actually void and have the opportunities to void pee and poop throughout your day. Mm. How do you help kids drink when they don't like water? My, It's funny because my daughter used to love water until she hit a certain age. I think it was right before she was two, I want to say. So up until she was two, she loved water and her water bottle. And, you know, we would get fun little water bottles and that seemed to keep pique her interest and, and keep her interested in drinking water. And then for some reason, right around two, she just decided she did not like water anymore. And it was a big struggle. And then we started trying to give her juice boxes just to make it more fun. And then even then that was kind of difficult. And then finally, uh, it was actually my mom um, who discovered that I guess she likes this, this combination of two different juices, but then we fill the rest up with water. So it's sort of just like a flavored water, but healthy. So it's like juice flavored water. We call it like apple juice lemonade. So it's like a little bit of apple juice, a little bit of, of lemon juice, and then the rest with water. And for some reason, that's the magic drink for her. And that's literally the one of the only things she will drink even to this day. Like she'll just still she'll, she'll drink a little bit of water, but it's mostly just this juice flavored water. But I don't know if that's the right thing to do. But I'm just throwing that out there that that was a really big struggle that we had just trying to get them to drink water. So I, I can imagine that a lot of other parents might have something similar, some similar issues with their children, getting them to stay hydrated. Absolutely. It's one of the hardest things to do um, because water is tasteless. And most of the kids are like, I don't want to drink this after I've had something good or they just <laughs> never liked it. You know, they just never were water drinkers. And so for those kiddos, it's really figuring out what could be fun. So using like different mm. straws or like incorporating a game, like you're playing a game or you're reading a book and every time, every two pages, oh, we need to take a sip and, you know, move on. So it's like super tedious, but it's showing kids like, hey, number one, I can be successful at this, even though it's little and I, you know, little bits, little volumes, but we're not necessarily like being focused on like, you need to drink all this, like five ounces <laughs> in this one sitting, but we have to understand, hey, this is, yeah, this is a struggle for them. Like, let's make right. this fun and developmentally appropriate. And then like you're, like you did, you have to find out what works, you know, and if you have to put little, you know, different kinds of fruits in there, or sometimes herbs, or sometimes um, veggies, like some kids really love like this, the taste of cucumbers, cucumbers and oh, mint yeah, and water, great. like it just depends on the kiddo. And I will say if it's really that big of a struggle, have them eat their water. So that means like mm -hmm. things like watermelon and oranges and different kinds of fruits or vegetables that have high content of water in it. Um, but it's, it's really 
having that offering of the water all the time, even though they're like, no, I don't want it. And if you get one sip, then you Mm -hmm. praise that. You're like, oh my goodness, you're practicing with your water. And then you move on. It's not this like, oh my goodness, I need you to drink all of this. Your poop is going to get hard. You, you know, and like sometimes parents, (laughs) they just feel that they like, they don't mean to do it, but they're just like so concerned, but it's then the kids (laughs) you're so concerned then I must be so concerned and I don't like this. So I'm not going to drink it anymore. Like that's strange that you're always telling me to drink this water. I'm like, I have no idea why, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's really that, that slow, gradual process of being supportive. And I get it. Like not parents don't have all the time in the world. And if you're working and you have other kids, like how in the world are you going to expect me to sit there for 15 minutes, giving little sips of water. And I say, if you can do that, at least once a week. I mean, it doesn't have to be 15 minutes, even three mm. minutes. You're building skill. And when we build skill on top mm. of skill, kids get more confident and they get more comfortable. Mm. So that's a big, a big thing to kind of just remember and keep in the back of our minds. Mm. I, I was laughing because I've definitely d- done that a couple times. Yeah. <laughs> We're really desperate because my daughter... She really struggled with uh, a constipation for for a while there because of the hydration issue. So I, mm-hmm. I love that so much. Gosh, there's so many follow up questions as you're talking. That <laughs> I'm like, oh well, you know, what about this or this? I'm you know, I'm just trying to basically get as much of a general outline for everyone listening because potty training and t- you know toilet training has been a really it's been a, a a requested topic for a while now, and I just haven't found anyone. Uh, that's evidence based to be on. So that's why I'm just so excited to to finally have you on and ask you all all these questions. So when you've when you've been talking and explaining all these different sorts of toilet training and instilling good habits, uh, I was thinking of a question that what do you consider the difference between potty training and then also instilling good habits? Because as as you've been explaining everything, it seems like there's maybe a difference between the two because we think of potty training as okay well they can go to the bathroom with and they don't have to wear a diaper anymore right they can actually go to to a physical bathroom i mean uh but then it sounds like instilling good potty like toilet training habits Mm -hmm. is a long process is that accurate and then how long i guess would you say that 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 takes yeah i can see how you can draw that out like it's a it's really a process that's lifelong because even as we get older um an example could be for me when I was in grad school and this happens when kids are in in elementary school we don't want to miss out on what the teacher is talking about right and Mm -hmm. so this example of I'm gonna hold my pee until he's finished is (laughs) something that happens even in adulthood and that's that's not Yeah. And that's not necessarily good bowel habits or good bladder habits. And if we can instill those things at a young age and be aware of the things that we can do in order to support a child throughout their lifespan to be able to not do that, you'll see more of a shift towards like health and well-being versus like having to deal with dysfunction. And that's, I think, the difference between two, like, toilet training and toilet learning is, like, really, um, I think, with the the training piece, like, potty training, there's so many um, 
resources out there that have a certain method. And we talked about this with societal pressures and parental pressures that like we have to follow this because this is what's been successful for other people, but it doesn't necessarily like my child doesn't fit into that. Like, what do I do then? Like, am I just a terrible parent or is there something seriously wrong with my child? And I like to take a step back and tell parents is like those, it's just like a recipe book. We have to figure out what exactly we put together to be able Mm. to support the healthful living or the healthful functioning of the bowel and bladder system in your child. And that's a different approach than just like here, put them in these, um, you know, pull-ups and then the next day take it away and then give them a treat or whatever. It's more of like, let me learn about how the system works. Let me learn about development and then let me support my child through this. Cause it's just like a developmental milestone, like walking or crawling or running. You're not forcing your child to walk or run or crawl. And we shouldn't be forcing our, our child to like toilet train or, or be independent in toileting function. Um, but we, we can be helpful around, along the process and we can be supportive if we know what the thing, what the, I don't want to say correct thing, but what the, um, developmentally appropriate thing to do is. Um, so I think if you're looking at it like that, it is a longer process because as that child ages, the task demands of that child increases, meaning, at in kindergarten, there's some help there. There's maybe a bathroom environment where it's right in the classroom and they're able to go. Maybe there's a teacher's assistant there for, you know, 12 children. There's two teachers that can help along with this process. And then that child goes into first grade and the bathrooms are down the hall or the child goes into second grade. And now they only have time to go to the bathroom during recess. And so all these things affect how they're going to take care of their body. And we have to understand that as they grow and develop the demands on them to take care of themselves for this, this is just one area of life. Like it's, it's big for some kids because they've struggled so much when they were learning, when they were going through the Mm. process. So that's kind of how I look at it. It's like, how can we support this evolution of being body autonomous and independent in our toileting as we grow in age. Mm. I like that. So let's say a parent has a child in the optimal range of toilet training and they're, they want to instill good habits that we've been talking about, like good toilet. Or I, I, I guess I'm struggling with the right terminology. What would be the right terminology to say that you just want your child to have really good habits for using the restroom? Is there like yeah. a certain phrase that you use or? I say like good toileting habits or good bowel and bladder habits because okay. you're, that's what you're kind of um, taking care of is your your bowel and your bladder. So <laughs> that's what I say. Okay. But there's, I don't think that there's like a specific terminology. I think you can use right. things Um so okay. it would be, yeah, so yeah. I guess what are some examples of a good routine for that? A good routine would be, well, when the child wakes up, um, having them sit to use the restroom. And then also for you is modeling. So, oh, I noticed when I wake up in the morning, it feels heavy, like something's like heavy on my tummy or kind of mm. down by where my vagina area is. And I'm big on like using correct anatomical terms. 
um, for children. So they're on the same page as understanding what body parts are, are where and what mm-hmm. they do and what is appropriate and what is not in terms of touch. Because when we're talking about toileting too, this is mm-hmm. a big um, issue around body autonomy and um, just mm. freedom and understanding of what appropriate touch is and consent. Mm. So mm-hmm. this is a big That's thing a that point. I teach kids as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, if That's you're a, a, yeah, a boy or a male or identify as a boy or a male, you say penis, your scrotum, your perineal area, your anus, your rectum, your bladder. So I'm, I'm talking about these things. And sometimes I look, the parents are like kind of shocked, right? I'm talking to like a four-year-old and I make them understand like, I, because I want them to hear these terms and understand and know at a young age what they are. Mm-hmm. So a lot of it is education, not only with the parents, but with the child, because mm-hmm. as they grow and develop, they're going to understand more cognitively. And so if they get it, like the messaging now, it's just like how they learn their ABCs or, you know, a song, it just becomes second nature. Mm-hmm. Oh, I understand that poop or stool is in my rectum. I, and when I have that feeling of maybe something coming out, that means I have to go to the bathroom. And mm-hmm. do I hold it in or do I let it go? Oh, well, I know that it's helpful for me to let it go because I don't want it to become hard and ouchy when it comes out when I do let it out. So they start making connections between what they're in control of and what seems to not be in their control. Mm -hmm. And we work through that process. Um, So I would be describing how it feels. And then I would show, you know, I'm sitting down on the toilet. My feet are on the ground and touching. Wow, yours aren't. We're going to use a stool because your body really likes to be like stuck like a statue when you're sitting on a toilet. So all the Mm -hmm. pee and poop will come out. How does it feel for you? And you have to understand like where that child is. You wouldn't ask that to an 18 month old, but you would be describing <laughs> right. it, right? Oh, it feels tickly, like butterflies in my stomach, maybe. Or it feels like um, a race. Someone told me, oh, it feels like a rainbow coming out of my bottom. I was like, that is so awesome. I'm just going to use that, you know, like, and kids are yeah, so grateful like that, like so creative. And it's just yeah. being open and understanding. And kids are going to shock you sometimes because they have more um, intuition into what's happening than we think mm. that we give them credit for. So it's really, you know, posing that question or waiting in a response. And in a world that's so just fast paced, sometimes I say, just take that pause, wait, wait, because their kid is still processing what you're trying to ask them, or what you're trying to have them do. So if you're giving them a command, or giving them, uh, you know, instructions, like, I need you to sit down or sit down, please. If you're seeing that they're like all over the place and they need real like strict directions, um, you use the less words are better. But at the same time, you want to make sure that we're giving that second instead of being like all over them. Like, oh, did you hear what I said? I said, sit down because your pee's coming out. And and then, you know, it's like really just take a deep breath. Oh, I need you to sit down and count to 10. Mm -hmm. Smile, mm-hmm. maybe turn away, look, and then see what they're doing. Oh, they're pulling their pants down. Oh, they're pulling the pull-up down, whatever it is. And then you praise that. Wow, I really liked how you did that on your own. Now I'm here to help you. Um, so it's it's modeling. It's describing how you're feeling. And then it's giving the pauses. The in-betweens are really important mm-hmm. because they'll shock you. They'll, sh- they'll show you a skill that you didn't think that they had. 
Mm, I love that so much. I, I, I can't wait to try that. I, I never even thought <laughs> of doing that. So I, I noticed that you were talking about feet on the ground. And that's a question that I did want to ask is, do you recommend kid potties where kids can actually have their feet on the ground or the, the toilet seats? Or does it not matter where the, you know, they kind of climb up and then they have like a seat that goes on top of the adult potty? Mm-hmm. I like the, um, the floor potty to learn on because it's more accessible and they don't have to manage a step up to like a stool or like a ladder. And it takes away that task demands. Remember I talked about like the task demands, like the steps of what you actually need to do to achieve actually mm-hmm. letting a pee or poop out in the toilet. There's more, more steps than you think. And, mm-hmm. um, all those things play a role into how the child's going to to learn and how they progress with that skill. So take an example, if you had a floor potty in the in say the living room area and versus like they have to go to the toilet. So a child who is young and who's learning um, what that urge sensation means and what the action is, it's going to be harder for them to stay continent or hold and contract the pelvic floor to mm. walk all the way to the bathroom, step up on a step or have someone lift them up on a step, then pull their st- their underwear down and then have them sit versus there's a right. potty right there, pull it down and sit. It's taking away that um, those steps that are actually cognitively really um, challenging for some kids. It's like the sequence mm. of steps. What do I need to do? And if we can make it as simple as possible in the beginning, you're going to get better outcomes. Yeah, I can see that because, you know, at first when I was thinking of potty training my daughter that I didn't really want that, I I didn't want all the cleanup involved with a floor potty, but I did notice that it was a lot easier for her to just use the floor potty. And then also, uh, since, you know, I had mentioned she was having some issues with the constipation that it was, it seemed like it was easier for her to have a bowel movement when her she was on the smaller potty. So I'm not sure if that's, I know I, I do want to get a little bit into um, the constipation part of it too. So we can, uh, I know that we're sort of running out of time, but uh, we can <laughs> dig a little bit more into that. Uh, but before we go on to the constipation, I thought for our listeners who aren't familiar with the pelvic floor, maybe if you could just briefly talk about what that is. I know that we've talked about that in previous episodes. We've had a pelvic floor physical therapist, actually a couple on, talking about it in terms of women, but uh, in case anyone's listening for the first time or they're not really familiar with the, what a pelvic floor, maybe you could just give a quick summary of what it is and then why it's also important for already be thinking about the pelvic floor in terms of our children. Yeah. So for the pelvic floor, they're basically a group of muscles that span the bottom of our pelvis or like our, the bones, and they help keep everything in. So they're support for our internal organs. If we didn't have that, we would everything would come out. So they, they are a really important part of function to, to support our insides. And they also have different functions. So there's five different functions of the pelvic floor. I won't go into all of them just for, for kids. Basically what we're looking for is they play a role in sphincteric function. So how things open and close. So, um, there's three holes. So for females, we have the urethra where the pee comes out, the vagina, and then the anus. And so there are um, muscles around those that are close and open as we tell them to. Um, and most of the time, what happens is we aren't even aware how we're holding tension in our pelvic floor. Why is this 
an issue for kids is because when they're potty learning, they're learning how to use those muscles, how to how to contract and how to relax them in certain moments, in certain um, you know, urge sensation moments, meaning their bladder, like I mentioned in a previous example, the bladder gets full. And what they need to do is keep that sphincter, that opening closed so pee doesn't leak out. But when they go to pee, they have to learn how to relax it. And sometimes that relaxation, kids are just learning that. So sometimes you'll hear like they'll let go a little bit and then it'll stop and then it'll drip again and then it'll come out a little bit more and then and then it'll have a stream. So they're just learning how using the pressure inside their abdominal area mm. helps also too with how the pelvic floor moves because we know um, the way that we breathe is directly linked to how our pelvic floor moves. So our diaphragm is our breathing muscle and our pelvic floor is down here and they work together. And when a child is able to use their their breath, they're actually helping with the intra-abdominal pressure to help void. Um, So that's really important too. And they're like, well, how do you train that in kids? Like, how do you train a kid to like learn how to breathe from their belly? It's like, well, we use things like bubbles. Bubbles Mm. are awesome. And blow toys, anything where they're um, passively breathing, right? They're not saying, okay, I'm going to take a Deep, deep belly breath into my abdominal area. <laughs> right, and then I'm going to relax like an adult. <laughs> yeah, like, and, and that's the difference between if you're a pelvic floor therapist working with children, you have to find developmentally appropriate activities mm-hmm. to get them to do to elicit the, the uh, muscle um, contraction or relaxation that you're aiming for. And so that's really important like the differentiation between an adult pelvic floor therapist or a women's health therapist that doesn't treat children and Mm. a pediatric pelvic floor therapist, things like, you know, pinwheels and whistles and all the fun things that we have in the clinic that parents have at home that we practice with to get the coordination um, correct. So they're completely voiding and there's nothing left behind because if things are left behind, then you start seeing dysfunction, more constipation, UTIs, you know, overactive bladder, all these things that we want to prevent in kids. I saw another cool thing that you did where you had a pretend candle and I saw your Instagram page and then you had the kids pretend to blow it out. And it's funny because my, my daughter, she gets, uh, yeah, yeah, that I I would love for you to talk about that, but it's, it's so funny because my daughter has a monthly subscription to KiwiCo. I'm not sure if you heard of it. It's just like STEM activities for age. It's there's age appropriate STEM activities. And then this week, activity came with a little candle that you're saying like the the battery operated candle so I'm really excited to try the activity that I just saw uh, on your page so could you describe how you use that battery operated candle when you're trying to instill good potty uh, habits for toddlers yeah so then I I use this actually with my toddler so you know being it, it it doesn't matter if you're a pelvic floor therapist working with kids the kid that you have is the kid you have. Like, of course I would have a child who has trouble with constipation or who has trouble with like (laughs) voiding or whatever. Right. And so it's something that, um, I noticed when she switched from breast milk to solids and she just had constipation. And so I knew, Mm. okay, early on, I'm going to wait and I'm going to watch her cues, but I'm also going to make sure that I'm doing activities to help kind of build that 
um, motor skills and the muscles to understand when she's ready to um, toilet learn or potty train that she can go back to, oh, I know when me and mom do our like bubbles, like when I get her on the toilet, now she understands what that feeling is. Mm. And then I'm going to link that to when she has an urge or when she's going to go um, to the bathroom for a time sit because that helps elicit just that um, muscle coordination and the understanding of, oh, I remember this. I know what this is supposed to feel like. And then it actually helps with getting everything out. So Mm. this little trick is you get one of these um, flameless candles and you have the child take like a belly breath in, but they don't know how to do that. So first in the video, I didn't do it, but I would tell them like, oh, pretend you're smelling like a flower. How do you do that? Mm. Or for my daughter, it's chocolate cake. Pretend this is a chocolate cake. What is it? Does it smell good? What do you do? And she goes, and then when you take a deep breath in, the belly goes out. And I say, now blow out the candle. And so with that inhalation and exhalation, the pelvic floor descends or elongates, which relaxes the muscles. And with the exhalation, it comes back up. You need to understand that to be able to help kids um, fully void. And we're not telling them to do that, but we're giving them these activities to do. So then they start understanding, oh, when I did that, more pee came out. Oh, okay. Oh, when I did that, more poop came out. So it's linking the activity with the musculoskeletal system to get a better um, coordinated movement of everything that needs to be moving while you're voiding or while you're not voiding. So there's sometimes when you're in the car and you can't pee. So what do you need to do? Oh, I need to hold. I need to pull up the pelvic floor. Well, how do I do that? Oh, I pretend like I don't want to toot out in kindergarten class. Mm, I got to hold it, right? So you're activating and you're engaging. And so you're building awareness, body awareness. How is that those muscles working? How am I in control of this? Mm. Wow, you're the expert I didn't even know I had to talk to because you're basically <laughs> solving my toddler's problems as you're, as you're as you're speaking. So it's so it's so funny because recently, you know, as I already mentioned, my toddler's uh, she struggled with constipation, and it's still an ongoing process. But recently, we noticed that whenever she has to have a bowel movement, that she'll just she'll pass gas a lot. And I'll say, hey, you go sit on the potty because you're past, you know, we call them toots. You're like, you're tooting, go sit on the potty. And then she always says, no, it's just toots. Like I don't have to go, but then it's a struggle. And then it's like, look, I'll come with you, come to the bathroom because she does have FOMO. I know you mentioned that on your page that a lot of toddlers have the FOMO. So I'm like, okay, I'll come with you. Let's go sit on the potty. And then she almost always has to have a bowel movement because she's, you know, passing gas all the time. (laughs) I'm going to have to try those, the candle tricks too, because then the other thing she does is then when she's sitting on the potty, it's like, okay, I'm done. Like she just went a little bit. And then we're like, Oh, just sit there a little bit. Cause she wants to hurry up and get off the potty. So I'm sure you've come across all these things, but. Oh yeah. Even my own child. I'm like, okay. So then I have to stretch it out. And it's like, you know, it's really true. And they're like, well, you know, when it's your own child, it's a little bit different. It's like, yeah, like I do this day in and day out with other people's children. And I will tell you, it's not any easier if your own child is struggling with this. And this is what you do for a living. And so for her, she does the same things. Like, and when I say, you know, oh, I noticed like, yeah, your toots are like, that is your body telling you it has to go. I know that you don't have to go right now, but we're going. And I give her a choice. Do you want to jump to the bathroom 
bathroom or do you want to skip to the bathroom? Oh, I like that. And then she's like, no, no, no. I'm waiting here till you're, till you're ready. And I, and I really have to do that. Like if uh, obviously I'm doing this when I have the time, right. I'm not doing this when I'm about to go to work and I'm rushing out the door, but if it's like, I'm at in the weekend and it's building skill. We have to think about it like that. I am building skill and I'm showing her, no, this is really what's happening. And you can be confident in me because I'm going to be here to support you. And that usually is the number one thing that sometimes these children are really, they're really seeking and they can't tell us that they really need. They really need that one caregiver, that one parent to like really be there with them um, to, to show them it's okay. And to, mm. and to really validate, oh, I noticed it's really hard for you to stop playing, but I'm, but we're going, we're going, and I'm going to wait right here. And then, oh, it looks like you need more help. So I think I'm going to play the music. And after the music's done, then we're going to walk together. Mm. So you're giving, you're giving choice and you're giving time, but then they're, they're, there's a fine line, right? There's a fine line where it's like, oh, I noticed like pee is really coming out. Then I really need to bring you into the bathroom and we're going to change here. Mm. The pee came out as a surprise because you waited too long, but next time you'll get it. It's so encouraging to hear you say that you don't have to do it every single time because I know that's been a big barrier for me at least because you know, so you're a working mom, I'm a working mom. Um, even, even those who aren't working moms, you know, stay at home moms, it's the same thing. You're always having something going on. There's always, you know, dishes to wash or a load of laundry to put in or those sorts of things. You always feel like you're rushing. And then at least for me, I know that a big barrier for me doing certain things is I think that if I can't do it every time, then I I might as well not do it at all because I can't carry through every single time. But it's so encouraging to hear that, well, even if it's just on the weekends when you have more time, that's enough just to instill those good habits. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is kind of, the sad part about, you know, social media or other parents or like, you know, just things out there. It's like, oh, you have to be like this way all the time. And if you can't do it all the time, then like you said, it's intimidating. Like, I'm not even going to try it because it's like, why would I start doing that? And I know I can't do it all the time. So why even start? But I will tell parents like, no, like that's just noise. Like that's just like things that we have to tune out and you know your limitations and you know your strengths and your child does too. They're the most forgiving people on earth and they will love you regardless, but they are looking to you for the most help and support. And even like I said, even on the weekends, even for three minutes a day. And a lot of the people who come to my clinic say, you know, this all sounds great. And I really want to help. I I want you to help us. But I I just don't know how much time commitment I can make to actually doing the home program. I said, well, the thing is, is you have to prioritize as well. What is what is priority to you? Like an hour on Instagram doing your stuff or like 10 minutes with your child, you know, and you have to be real, you have to be real with yourself. And if that's not something you're willing to look at right right now, maybe in a month or two, or maybe a year, but it's up to the parent to really shift. And that's what I've seen in my practice is, you know, parents come to me to say, hey, I need help with this. But the biggest change is the relationship they have with their child when they work with me and the mm-hmm. relationship that they have with themselves. Like, okay, I can, I can give myself more grace. Like, you know, there, it doesn't have to be just this like black and white thing. And I'm not a terrible parent if my kid's still in pull-ups by four and a half or my kid's still bedwetting at age 12. Like now you're here, you're in, 
you know, my care where I can guide you and I can help you through the process. But now you're ready, you know, maybe before you weren't and that's okay. And that's fine. You can't change those things, but you're here now and you're present for your child. So I think that's a big, big kind of message that I have in my practice is that, you know, we really have to um, just be cognizant of those things and also be willing to, sh- to, to change how we are as a parent and caregiver. And it's not easy, mm-hmm. but it's worth it. You know, it's, it really is. It de- yeah, it definitely is. I love that so much. I know that we're almost out of time. I do want to talk a little bit about the constipation. I know we've been touching on it, but I would just love to hear uh, what your summary is on how we can best approach the having our kids have good bowel movements and then not having constipation. I know that uh, hydration is a bit big aspect of it, as you've already talked about. What other good habits can we help promote in our children uh, so that they do they don't struggle with constipation, or even I'm sure there's some dietary recommendations that you can give as well. Yeah, so this is huge. I mean, it's so big nowadays, and it's there's just more people um, reporting that their children are constipated. And I work a lot with functional integrative dietitians who work in pediatrics, mm. and they have wonderful resources. There's some um, that I've done some lives with on Instagram who are wonderful resource, um, functional medicine doctors who have a different approach than just giving prescribed medication like laxatives mm. for long-term use for children is very important. I will say if you are a parent preventing constipation at all costs is going to be like number one, like my number one um, recommendation, because that affects so many things in a child's um, well-being, meaning that it can affect how their bladder is actually functioning. When you have too much stool in the Mm. rectum, you have built up toxins, which can cause mood swings. There's so many different things. And if we're constipated, that poop is not coming out normally and it stretches the rectum, which can cause more challenges with urge Mm. and more fecal leakage as the child grows older. Functional constipation is huge. So functional constipation is constipation that's diagnosed from a pediatrician or a specialist like a GI doc, gastroenterologist, Mm. um, when all other physiological conditions are ruled out, meaning there's no physiological issue or medical condition that's causing this child to have constipation. But it is the hardest to treat because it's based from... Um, maybe a child having a painful poop in infancy or a painful poop during um, the potty training process, and then they do withholding. And so the withholding is actually the cause, and we have to figure out, well, why are they withholding? You know, okay, we get the poop softer, but they're still withholding. So it's not that they're it's painful anymore, but they're just holding because of maybe the past trauma. Maybe some of the sensory stuff I, I mentioned early in our in our talk. But there's all these different things that we have to kind of be curious about and explore when a child is kind of getting managed care, but it's still not shifting what's happening. Hmm. That's so interesting. And as you're talking, I'm thinking, oh, I I didn't even know that there were, you know, the the what do you call them? The functional pediatric dietitians. Is that is that who helps with the the yeah, constipation with the, in kids? Yeah, so with the nutrition part of it. So they're okay. integrative, yeah, integrative functional nutritionists 
who actually look at different kinds of foods to support gut health, because we know too, gut health, the gut is the second brain of the body. And when that Mm. is out of whack, then you see other imbalances or behaviors that can pop up like, you know, sensitivities to foods or skin conditions like eczema. On Wednesday, I'm actually doing a live with a functional um, naturopathic doctor who specializes in constipation and um, in children. So that's going to be phenomenal to talk to her. And she has, she's just a wealth of knowledge as well. Mm. Uh, And so there's just a lot of different providers out there that can really help with preventing it or with help with the resolution. Mm. Um, And so those are kinds of the things that I would recommend for constipation. And hey, if you have to give your child a prescribed medication for a a certain amount of time to help support them through this challenge, so be it, you know, don't beat yourself up over it. But also know that there's other options. So Mm -hmm. a lot of people go to a pediatrician who doesn't know that there's all these other options and just give the number one prescribed medication. And you'll see if you follow me on Instagram, I've done some reels and things about that. But there are options. And to be a advocate for your child, if it's not something that resonates or sits well with you, mm-hmm. you can always say, no, I don't feel comfortable. I like another option for my child. And if they don't give it to you, then you kind of know your answer. And you might have to go to another provider who is able to listen to you and your needs. Yeah, gut health is something that at least I don't normally think of when it comes to our kids' health. And, you know, just the same way that I didn't think of public floor health as something that we should be thinking about in our children as well. These all seem like they're more adult issues, but as our discussion has gone on, I'm thinking more and more that there maybe adults have some of these issues because they yeah. weren't solved as children. So exactly. it's so important exactly. to have this, all these good habits and behaviors early on in life. So yeah, I've enjoyed our conversation so much. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on. And I'd love to end it with the personal question that we always ask our guests, which is uh, when is a time that you realize that it's, you know, you don't have to be a perfect mom and it's okay to be a good one instead? Uh, well, during the potty learning process that I'm going in right now with my child um, and just having her go to the bathroom in public at a park, just squatting and saying like, hey, I don't care what you think. I I want my child to have good bowel and bladder habits. I could care less if you think I'm a terrible person by letting my, my daughter pee on this lawn in front of like all these kids, but I support her and her body. And so like that was my that was my moment. <laughs> I wasn't super proud, but I was like, oh you know nice. What? I like I can do it. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So I'm glad that that's, we're not the only ones that do that. We also do that because my, my daughter always has to go last minute and we always joke about it. One of her, uh, I guess famous sayings in our family is when she was two years old and she had just been potty trained, we were on a walk and she was looking around and she said, Hey, there's no potty around here. And she said here with like an N at the end, which just made it even more funny. So she's like, there's no potty around here. And she was like looking all around and she's trying to process. So then we just had her go on the grass, but I'm glad to know that that's, that's approved by you. So that's, that's good to know. <laughs> yeah. I'd rather that than hold or mm-hmm. let go in the underwear. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's good to know. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Kira, again. And where can people find you if they want to learn more about you or even have a consultation with you? 
Yeah. So I provide a free complimentary 15 minute video consult. Um, you can book that on my website at www.alohaintegrativetherapy.com. And you can also follow me on Instagram at Aloha Integrative Therapy. And I'd be love, like, I would love anyone to just reach out to me who's listened to this podcast. If you have any questions, I love connecting with, with you all. Hmm. And I'll link all of those that you just mentioned to, in our show notes. So if anyone's listening, you don't have to hurry up and write it down. You can just look in our show notes and then click those links so you can find Kiara online. So Kiara, thank you so much again. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye.